When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back. Here's why you should watch today's Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Accusations and denials are flying high about the company behind an Ethereum rival avalanche. We'll recap the key developments since CryptoLeaks report on Ava Labs. Plus, we're going to do another deep dive into arguably the biggest story in the crypto world right now. Ethereum enthusiast Ryan Berkmans tells us why he thinks the upcoming merge is a game changer. We'll break this conversation down into key takeaways as always. My name is Nico Bruga. We have, as always, Ash Bennington. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or join us on the Real Vision platform. Now let's get right into the latest price action. We're seeing some recovery after a lot of red late last week. Bitcoin dropped once again below $20,000 after Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell reiterated the need for more interest rate hikes. Risk assets like crypto fell sharply after his speech on Friday. Right now, though, Bitcoin is trading higher and has once again bounced back above $20,000 levels. Ash, what are you seeing on the Ethereum side? Thanks, Nico. As we've seen lately, Ether is making bigger moves than Bitcoin. It also suffered a steeper drop following Powell's speech, but is recovering more quickly. It was up as much as 10% on the day and is now back above $1,500, which has become something of a psychological level in Ethereum. However, Bank of America warns Ether's recent price jump uh, may continue to fade as the merge nears. In a rather bearish note, as reported by Coindesk, the B of A uh, report says the longer term macroeconomic situation remains weak. It also says, critically, the merge will not solve scalability issues or high transaction fees. This comes against a backdrop of very low trading volume in Ether. Uh, Decrypt Media points to a report from crypto asset managers CoinShares. Uh, it said trading volume among institutional investors for crypto funds fell to $1 billion last week. That was the second lowest level all year. It follows a report from Glassnode warning that low volume transactions, that's transactions below the $1,000 threshold, have continued to fall. Nico, it may still be summer in the Northern Hemisphere, but the market remains gripped by crypto winter cold. I have to say, Ash, I wouldn't mind some of the actual cold air considering we're in New York and we got ourselves another heat wave. But uh, let's turn our attention to one more cryptocurrency we want to highlight. AVAX, the native token of the Avalanche blockchain, is up double digits in the past 24 hours after heavy falls late last week. That brings us to our top story. This is a wild one that has caught the attention of some of the biggest crypto players. It requires careful unpacking. So here's what we know as of now. CryptoLeaks is an investigative platform that says it's run by blockchain enthusiasts who hope to expose wrongdoing in the crypto industry. On Friday, it posted explosive whistleblower allegations against Ava Labs, the company behind the so-called Ethereum killer blockchain Avalanche and its native token AVAX, 
Ash, what did the CryptoLeaks report say? Well, in a nutshell, Nico, CryptoLeaks alleges Ava Labs has been involved in a smear campaign. Smear campaign is how Coindesk characterized this story in their headlines. Uh, so a CryptoLeaks article claims Ava Labs paid lawyers to go after Avalanche's rivals. The article also says these actions were aimed at distracting regulators. The article alleges Ava Labs paid law firm Roche Friedman in both Ava Labs stock and in AVAX tokens. That's the native token of Avalanche. The report is quite lengthy and also includes surreptitiously recorded video purportedly showing the law firm's founder, Kyle Roche, talking about the nature of his partnership with Ava Labs, Nico. Indeed, this story has caught the attention of the likes of Binance CEO CZ and Block Tower CIO Ari Paul. CZ even made a note in his tweet that if the video linked is indeed real and not a deep fake, it's a massive story. But in terms of the people actually involved in the story itself, what are they saying, Ash? Well, the CEO and founder of Ava Labs, this is Emin Gun Sirar, uh, has called the allegations, quote, categorically false. He said, quote, neither I nor anyone else at Ava Labs ever directed Roche in his selection of cases, among other rebuttals uh, from CIRAR. The Ava Labs CEO says Roche has only handled what Emin Gunsire characterized as, quote, minor legal cases regarding Avalanche. CIRAR also further called CryptoLeaks a, quote, disreputable site, close quote. As for Kyle Roche, Roche says the report, quote, contains numerous unsourced false statements and illegally obtained highly edited video clips that are not presented with accurate context, close quote, Nico. Obviously, this is a very chaotic story, but thank you for laying out the facts. Now, Ash, what do you think about the story more in general? Obviously, this is one of our, uh, we have these type of stories about once or twice a year with crypto. Yeah, Nico, this is a crypto food fight. We've seen them before, obviously, uh, as people who've been following the space for some time know. The reality is we're going to have to wait and see. Markets move on rumor and innuendo. You hear people say things like buy the rumor, sell the news. Uh, but we're going to have to be careful about how we report the facts here, as we indeed are doing. Uh, look, I would just say, Nico, you know, I've been covering these stories in the crypto news cycle since there was a crypto news cycle, probably starting back in 2017. Before that, it was kind of just a Twitter flow cycle. But we see these stories come up from time to time. Uh, often they involve these sort of very intense statements. Uh, and we're going to have to wait and see what happens happens as the facts come out, Nico. Very well said, Ash. And we'll be keeping an eye on this story as to how it develops and affects the AVAX price. Here are some other stories we're looking at. Meta, the company behind Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, has added NFT support to another one of their platforms. Users will now be able to post their NFTs on Facebook. Ash, this sounds like a big deal for mainstream NFT adoption. How is this going to work exactly? Uh, well, you know, this is really an interesting story because what this is about is about the ability to basically have Facebook slash Meta slash Instagram connect with the underlying NFT wallet so that you can see the entire chain of custody. You can see the validated ownership. People have joked before, obviously, about NFTs. You can just right click on them and save as. Uh, what this is really about is showing the actual architecture, the chain of custody, the chain of ownership, which makes it unique and I think makes it incredibly interesting in the way it could be integrated into the meta ecosystem as we go forward, Nico. Yeah, lots to keep an eye on there and seeing if uh, this very, very cold crypto winter for NFTs thaws at all on, on top of this news. 
In other stories, the world's largest derivatives marketplace, CME Group, has launched two new crypto products. Ash, what are they and why should we care? Well, that's exactly right, Nico. Uh, CME has added two new products, Bitcoin Euro and Euro and Ether Euro. These are futures contracts uh, on CME. We should care because ultimately it shows some demand, current demand or the projected future demand uh, that CME Group sees for these trading pairs. Look, here's what's interesting. Folks at CME Group aren't cryptocurrency activists. They're not enthusiasts. They look at this with a very cold eye. They look at it to try and figure out where the demand is and frankly, where they can make money. So I would say this is a very interesting proxy for what we're going to see developing in terms of future demand uh, for euro-denominated Bitcoin and Ether contracts, Nithko. Very well said. Indeed, the CME announcement is another example of a growing institutional expansion of crypto products. This is one step on a long road to a wider mainstream adoption of crypto. We're not going to get there overnight, and crypto is far from a finished product, as we all know. Even long-established blockchains continue to evolve. In fact, Ethereum is just weeks away from an event that will dramatically change its entire engine. Some, like Bank of America, have cautioned that this will not have as big of a positive impact as hoped for. Others, like Ryan Berkman's, an Ethereum investor and community member, are highly bullish. Ash, Ash asked Ryan why the move from proof of work to proof of stake is needed. Let's take a listen. Uh, the merge is really about taking Ethereum from proof of work, a, a venerable technology that invented uh, distributed consensus, invented the concept of a blockchain where you can have computers that talk to each other uh, and, and reach uh, a, a stable, correct state, even if up to half of them are malicious and incompetent. So proof of work is an incredible innovation that, that gave the world the promise of these, these public computer networks. And then as the years have passed, someone about, you know, maybe eight, 10 years ago had an idea, well, what if there was a better way? And it took them, a, the researchers and, and engineers, a, a very long time to, to really get to the bottom of that mousetrap and operationalize it. But what's come out is a system that is... Uh, almost in every way, except for its complexity, uh, superior to proof of work. And so, uh, and I, I think, you know, that's a controversial statement. Not, not everyone would agree with that. And right. I'm, I'm happy to get into the line items. Yeah, break, so, break down your view of why you believe that to be the case, superior in every way. Right. So uh, uh, with, with the exception of complexity and the longevity of the track record of proof of work, at its core, Ash, Proof of stake is a system which is both more secure as well as significantly more capital efficient and inexpensive for the Ethereum network to run. Over the past seven years of R&D leading to this rollout in a few weeks, we've taken the idea of crypto mining where computers in isolation with no knowledge of each other uh, solve those cryptographic puzzles and consume vast quantities of energy to secure the network. And we've replaced it with the so-called uh, staking system where anyone in the world is able to take their Ether tokens and uh, lock them up in the system to help run the system. And at its core, the proof of stake system is about checks and balances of all of the staking computers, all of the computers where these Ether tokens are locked up staking, keeping each other in check. It, it's much more uh, like a, a community of computers. And so, whereas in proof of work, 
security is created by lots of independent computers uh, competing to race towards this goal of f solving that next cryptographic puzzle. In proof of stake, it's more like a symphony. It's sort of a concert of staking computers that has a complex set of rules. Uh, and, and the result is that it's able to do it's able to produce the exact same uh, end customer benefit as proof of work, which is uh, secure, decentralized public chain block space. This is public, global public utility where anyone can pay a fee to use it. Only now, the engine underneath is totally different. It it it's much more socially coordinated. Uh, it it doesn't require any kind of uh, electricity consumption. Uh, uh, on on a large scale, you know, more so than than my laptop or or, or your phone, Ash. Uh, and then there's this incredible property where now Ethereum, as as a network uh, at the high level, is going to be truly profitable. And so uh, uh, when the merge comes, Ethereum will for the first time be uh, the only uh, public blockchain in the world uh, with significant profitability. So we've we've got security, we've got reduced environmental impact, economic profitability. Uh, these are just incredible line items. And what's the cost here? Well, the cost really is that it's a much more complex system uh, that just took time to develop and time to ensure that it's safe and ready for the big leak. So Ash, we've been hearing a lot about proof of stake as we've been covering the merge the last couple of weeks. But one question for me remains, besides your general thoughts on Ryan's answer, why don't other protocols adopt proof of stake? All right, well, the last question first, general thoughts. I think Ryan does a very good job of explaining the overall context here. He says it himself with great humility, I think, that not everyone will agree with his views. I'm sure that's true considering the nature of this ecosystem. Uh, to get to your first question, why don't other protocols adopt proof of stake? The short answer is lots already use proof of stake. So proof of stake coins uh, currently include Cosmos, Cardano, Polkadot, Solana, Tezos, and Algorand. It's interesting because there's slightly modified versions of proof of stake. You'll hear, for example, about DPOS, that's delegated proof of stake, PPOS, pure proof of stake, as in the case of Algorand. These are just slightly different inflections on the same theme. Bitcoin, on the other hand, is highly likely to remain proof of work, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. It's just such an incredibly important part of the ethos of that community. Uh, by the way, other proof of work coins include uh, Bitcoin Cash, Dogecoin, Monero, and Litecoin, Nico. Ash, you've repeatedly compared this Ethereum merge to changing the engine on a jet plane while flying 50,000 50, feet in the air. This is huge. This is complex. Things could go wrong. Here's Ryan talking about those very concerns. Let's take a listen. And so when we think about uh, the safety of the Ethereum merge and why we know it's going to work, that really starts, you know, at the beginning of that story with the Ethereum community's long-term decision to decentralize uh, the development uh, of the and maintenance of the protocol to these uh, separate teams, as well as a distinct research community that produces sort of a textbook specification that you could print out. And then that specification is studied by software teams that turn it into multiple independent programs, any of which can do the job, any one of which can do the job of running the Ethereum blockchain in proof of stake. So uh, today, there are four different programs, uh, which are perfectly safe and ready to run the Ethereum proof of stake network. Uh, 
no other blockchain community has even one. And uh, pardon me, two. They do have one. Uh, and now beyond the four, uh, there's even a, a longer tail of, of research clients and up and coming clients with various flavors and specializations. And the Ethereum Foundation, uh, which provides uh, a fair amount of centralized direction of the Ethereum effort, uh, has what we call a subtractive philosophy. Uh, that's something they espouse that they've written about. And in their subtractive philosophy, it is explicitly the mandate of the Ethereum Foundation to give away as much of their money uh, as makes sense over time to empower truly independent teams in different jurisdictions. And so when we think about the safety of the merge, this story really started and, and sort of hit, hit the middle of it with many different teams in different jurisdictions building different code bases that have all been tested, that have both their own private tests as well as a shared public test suite across all of them, as well as uh, uh, all, all of these software efforts are based on a PDF protocol specification, like a Word document that has been uh, the focus of a world-class research community for many years. And so the foundations here are just like no other ecosystem has this level of dedication to uh, integrity, security, and decentralization. And that, you know, that was really just setting the stage. And over the past four or five months, uh, there has been a, a, an intense uh, tactical effort to test every single aspect of these proof-of-stake software clients. We've seen multiple test nets. We've seen application layer testing where uh, we'll, we, we as a community will invite Ethereum application developers who are not involved in the, the transition to the merge. They're the customers of the merge. And we'll say, hey, do your applications still work on this, on this test net fork of Ethereum that's running proof-of-stake? We've engaged in bug bounties, Ash, and, mm. and different kinds of, of research initiatives to engage the security community, uh, not just at the protocol level, but in terms of the bits and bytes inside these programs to make sure they're doing uh, what they need to do. And so uh, the, the effort to test the merge uh, has, has truly been world-class and judicious. And I think it shows in you know, the many delays that the world is familiar with where you know, there was a, a, a an Ethereum who cried wolf phenomenon where uh, the merge just got pushed back so many times that nobody believed us. And, you know, uh, I, I have some good college buddies that I love to get into the crypto weeds with. And I told them uh, a few some weeks ago, I said, guys, the merge is coming for real this time. And they said, yeah, right. Uh, you know, lo and behold, here we are. Really love this question, especially after our discussion regarding security last week with Corby Pryor. So, Ash, what's your reaction to this clip, and what would you say Bitcoiners would argue against Ryan's answer here? Well, Nico, Bitcoiners just see the world very differently than Ethereum folks do. It's a, it's a very different worldview. It's a different set of values, different priorities, different ethos, and importantly, I would say those different views are expressed in the community, but also in the code itself. So it's just an incredibly different way of seeing the world, a different way of thinking about functionality. Uh, on the one hand, the store of value function, on the other hand, kind of everything else that Ethereum provides uh, in terms of an ecosystem to do all kinds of calculations, a so-called Turing complete computer where you can 
really truly have programmable money. And the Bitcoin side, some of that may be coming uh, in layer twos in the future. Uh, but as of right now, we're, we're not seeing the level uh, that we do see right now in Ethereum. In terms of the probability of success of the merge, this is the $200 billion question. There are lots of very smart people in this space who believe that the merge will be successful. Ryan obviously is one of them. He's an investor now, but it's important to point out he was a developer in a past life before becoming a full-time investor. Uh, you know, to me, and this is a very highly unscientific view, uh, but the people that we talk to here on Real Vision who know Ethereum the best believe that the merge will be successful. But, but for me, there is still this fundamental question about the unknowns here. This just feels like Knightian uncertainty. That's the sort of uh, $10 phrase from finance, which means unquantifiable risk. Uh, and I think Ryan actually touches on that directly in the next clip. Well, thank you for teeing us up right there, Ash. Let's take a look at that very next clip. Stanley Baldwin, uh, the British politician, once said, the bomber always gets through. There's always a flaw. There's always a vulnerability. There's always something you can't plan for. When someone makes that argument, and you obviously come down on the other side of it, what do you respond and how do you think about why that view may be excessively pessimistic or cynical? Ash, I, I don't think that view is pessimistic or cynical. I think that there, there will end up being some level of minor to medium severity issues over the medium to the long term, possibly even the day of the merge, although I don't believe that. And the, the thing the, I think the thing about uh, the potential uh, life finds a way approach of will we see merge problems is that, well, what work has the community done to prepare for these contingencies? And what what would the fallout look like in that situation? And really, there's there's a few irons in the fire here, Ash. When you run a proof of stake validator, you stake your ether and you you earn a return, currently estimated at a six percent real return the day of the merge. What's the downside for you? Well, if your validator keys, your private keys that you run that you use to run your validator, th these are the credentials that that represent. Your, your identity as a validator in the Ethereum proof-of-stake system. If those are compromised, uh, you could actually be hacked or extorted uh, for a certain percentage of your staked Ether, uh, estimated usually to be about half. And so one, one attack vector here is simply making sure that if the system breaks, let's make sure it doesn't break in a way that leaks everybody's validator keys. And there's been a, a tremendous amount of traditional uh, information security practices here just to secure this, this credential inside the validators. And uh, across the world, we see many professional staking operators that have uh, different approaches to ensure that this key credential stays secret. And so uh, if, if the merge were to break, uh, the, as long as everybody's validators are fine, that's the first and most important thing. Because if they weren't fine, it, it may put us in a situation where it would be difficult to walk back the extortionary effects of that. So securing the validator credentials is one of the first items. Uh, the other item is that if the merge breaks, does Ethereum continue working? And the answer is that uh, in, in computer distributed systems, there's often a design trade-off to be made between a system that's always perfectly consistent, that that will uh, uh, prioritizes keeping its own house in order versus a system that prioritizes being open 24 seven. So you might imagine if there's a hot dog stand 
and one of the French fry boilers lights up in flame. Is this the kind of restaurant that shuts down the restaurant? Well, most restaurants would, but not Ethereum. Ethereum's designed to stay open 24 seven, uh, even if there's a consensus problem uh, during or after the merge. And so it, on a real world basis, if there's an issue with the merge, it most likely, you know, the 98% the, the case that we've designed around is validators keep working and are secure. Ethereum keeps working and serving customers and financial activity and domain names and all that good stuff we do, NFTs. And then the gigabrains that really are responsible for uh, fixing these problems, who, who, by the way, are on high alert 24-7. They have all kinds of alarms and monitoring systems. They leap into gear and they find the minimum effective fix. We socialize that fix and get lots of eyes on it to make sure it's a legitimate, correct fix. And then we roll it out. And our, our, our timeline to be able to do this has some breathing room, specifically because Ethereum is designed to stay up 24-7, even when uh, you know, medium-grade problems occur. Another great question and answer. Really appreciate Ryan's honesty here. Now, considering Ryan's ans uh, answer, Ash, what is your reaction, and what do you think naysayers might say to Ryan's response? Well, what the naysayers will say is you just don't know. You just don't know. Obviously, it's something that hasn't been done yet. We've talked about it here on this show before. It's one thing for, to uh, run this on a test net and another thing to run it in production when there are hundreds of billions of real dollars at stake. You know, Ryan calls the ETH working correctly post-merge scenario the 98% case. I think he's probably speaking metaphorically there. It sounds like he probably thinks the probability of a catastrophic failure is significantly below 2%. But you know, what else can you really say at this point except for you don't know until it actually gets implemented? Again, as I said before, my base case based on the opinions of experts is that it probably does work because you see such an overwhelmingly supportive sort of tone in the space for the probability of success here. But again, you just don't know, and we're going to have to wait and see until after the fact. You know the old joke, Nico. It's very hard to make predictions, especially about the future. Very well said and very true. Let's take a look at our final clip. Here, Ryan is distilling his thoughts on the need to move to proof, to proof of stake in under two minutes. Let's take a listen. Don't confuse yourself with all the stuff going on in the world. Ethereum is working. Our scaling solutions of the Layer 2 ecosystem is working. Proof of stake is a winning technology. That's why every modern blockchain uses it. Nobody uses proof of work anymore when they start a new system. The world is moving towards globally ubiquitous use of crypto as an economic backbone. It's not a replacement for banks. It's not a replacement for traditional institutions. It's complementary. It's simply the second half of the internet with the first half of the internet, we gain the ability to download cat pictures in a digitally native fashion. And with, with Web3 and Ethereum, we've now gained the ability to pay for them in a digitally native fashion. Uh, and of course, many other wonderful capabilities arising from the programmatic nature of Ethereum apps, where they can automatically be money robots uh, uh, in, 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 in many ways. And so the facts are, in my view, Ethereum is working. Web3 is working. The space is a black hole that's pulling in talent from many different industries. Proof of stake is going to dramatically uh, take Ethereum from a permanent loss to permanent profitability. The result of that growth in combination with this profitability 
is going to cause Ethereum to flip Bitcoin. It is, in my group's view, numerically impossible for Bitcoin to retain its number one spot uh, over the medium to long term. And so I think that we're, we're really looking at a situation where four years from now, Ethereum is the number one coin in the world uh, and crypto will have continued to grow to global ubiquity. So Ryan is obviously an Ethereum optimist, and I do appreciate his answer here that this isn't a new bank, or at least not yet. But what do you think of Ryan's answer, Ash, especially his comment on that Ethereum will certainly flip Bitcoin? Thoughts? Well, I think Ryan truly believes it. He's obviously very passionate about the Ethereum space. I mean, the short answer is it depends. Uh, it depends on the adoption of varying use cases. In a proof-of-stake world, uh, there are lots of additional use cases and advantages. We've discussed this here before. Uh, you know, the idea of, obviously, a lower... Uh, you know, utility usage, lower electricity consumption is clearly something that's very positive for the space. ESG folks like it. There are a whole sort of panoply of potential uh, things that this can do right if it works. Uh, another one of them is setting a benchmark rate in the space uh, and having the ability to generate yield on a risk-adjusted basis above that, returning higher yields. I'll add a little bit of color here, Nico. Uh, RAL has a way of measuring the value of networks. This is daily transaction volume in dollars times the number of users. This is his proxy of estimating essentially the growth uh, of market cap or uh, what the growth of market cap target should look like here. Um, so, you know, really what this depends on is the value that the network generates. And we're going to see that uh, whether in RAL's formula or slightly different modified variations of that. We're ultimately going to see that in the usage, the number of users who are on the network and the dollar transaction volume or what other uh, store of value that you're using. We're ultimately going to see how that plays out based on the usage patterns. But I'll throw out another wild card here, Nico, with proof of stake. One of the things that you hear very frequently in the Ethereum space is the phrase censorship resistance. This is a common phrase on the Ethereum Foundation website, for example. And we may see, may, some pushback from governments about having an interest-bearing coin that doesn't do AML KYC. That, of course, is anti-money laundering, know your customer, or OFAC compliance. This is the Office of Foreign Asset Controls at Treasury that handles sanctions regimes. So we're going to have to see how that shakes out. But it is, I think, fair to say an open question for the future, Nico. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Ash. Now, on to our key takeaways. Here's what I've learned today and what I think the viewers can take away from this conversation. First, we learned why certain companies have already adopted proof of stake, Cardano, Polkadot, Solana, etc., as well as why certain other coins, Bitcoin, Doge, Monero, etc., continue to rely on proof of work. However, despite Ryan's optimism, Ethereum's transition from proof-of-work to proof-of-stake is still an open question when it comes to security and just what might go wrong. As Ryan argued, he's 98% sure about the success rate of the merge, but that still leaves 2% of what could go wrong. Despite that, the merge is on track, and we will need to be keeping a close eye on not only the merge itself, but how the system functions post-merge. Lastly, we should also be keeping a watch on the censorship-resistant elements of the merge and whether governments and regulators will take a closer look considering AML KYC. Now, on to some viewer questions. Ash, first up, we got Robert K, who left this comment on the Real Vision platform. One key thing that you haven't mentioned is the potential centralization risk following the merge, given that 
that 68.9% of all staked ETH is under control of only 11 entities such as Coinbase, Binance, and Lido. This is something that nobody's talking about and puts the Ethereum network at risk of centralized control and censorship. So Ash, what is what do you think of this? Is this a real concern? Robert K, great question. Uh, the folks who are talking about this right now are people in the Bitcoin community. You hear quite frequently this idea of centralization being a challenge for the Ethereum network uh, as we go forward into proof of stake. I think the reality is that the thing that we have to say here is we just don't know. This is yet sort of another example of things that are unknown unknowns, to quote Donald Rumsfeld. And so, you know, as we as we move into this uh, new proof of stake world, I think there are going to be these types of questions. We're going to have to wait and see. That's really the honest answer. But again, I think you can say that this is certainly the risk of uncertainty in the system, Nico. Thank you for that, Ash. And we got one more question from an RV employee, Max. He asks, will CME's crypto derivative offerings hurt the price of ETH by creating more leverage? Slim, similar to when ProShares rolled out BTC futures ETF near the top of BTC and most crypto. What do you think, Ash? Any thoughts there? Well, I think it's a great question. And it sounds like we're going to have our intern on the air pretty soon if he keeps coming up with questions like this. Look, I would say the structure is a little bit different. Uh, obviously, this is an ETF versus uh, versus a futures structure here. And the other important point is that there is already significant dollar-based liquidity in these futures contracts. Uh, this is just moving from dollar to euro or spinning up, I should say, a new product in euro. Clearly, there's an enormous amount of euro-dollar liquidity, not euro-dollars, but the pair euro-slash-dollar liquidity. So if, you, if institutional investors want to get in and out uh, of those contracts, they have the ability to do it already. This just saves them the step. It allows them to do it in a native currency. Maybe there's some other regulatory or tax advantages to it. I don't see this as being a kind of a revolutionary step. It sounds more like an evolutionary step to me. But ultimately, we're going to have to take a look at the, at the volume uh, and the volatility uh, after the fact in order to make that determination, Max. But great question. Thank you for that, Ash. Uh, great analysis and great question, as you said. Well, that's it for today's show. Thank you for watching. Don't forget to comment, like, or tweet at us. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube. Remember, this is your show. We want to hear from you on what's working, what's not. What guests do you want to see? What themes should we cover? Tomorrow, we got Luca Masani from Avant Garde talking all about recent developments in DeFi and why it matters to you. Make sure to subscribe to Real Vision for free if you already haven't. See you tomorrow live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing.